This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What if slaughterhouses had glass walls? Some animal rights activists think there'd be more vegetarians. It's partly why they film and release undercover videos of animal abuse. Well, Colorado State University animal scientist Temple Grandin wants transparency, too because she thinks the meat industry should show off the progress it's made, progress she has contributed to. Temple Grandin was elected this year to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences for her work on animal welfare and for her advocacy on autism, a condition she has. And to Temple Grandin, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. You've worked with the meat industry to change the way animals are slaughtered. How has life gotten better for livestock headed for slaughter in the U.S.? It's gotten way better. I've been in this industry for 40 years, and the 1980s and the 1990s were really bad. Then in 1999, I was hired by McDonald's Corporation to implement the animal welfare auditing, and I saw more change that year than 25-year career prior to that. And we used a simple five-point scoring system. Percentage of cattle shot the single shot. If they didn't make 95%, they failed. You had to have 100% dead when you hang them up on the rail. No more than 1% falling. No more than three cattle out of 100 mooing in the stun box. And electric pride use, if you want an excellent score, had to be down to 5%. And that scoring system went across the industry. Other companies like Wendy's immediately started working on it. It has improved a whole lot. And then in the last five years, USDA has gotten more strict. There are further improvements. It's totally different now at the large meat plants compared to how it was 20 years ago. And where does there still need to be progress made? Well, the slaughterhouses or or meat plants or harvest facilities, which some people like to call them. I'd rather just call them meat plants if you want a little nicer word than slaughter. Uh, The slaughter plants have really gotten good. They've gotten so good they're not going to get much better. And where we're going to have to make some changes is some of the problems I see coming into the slaughterhouses. Most dairies are going to bring their dairy cows in, old dairy cows in, when they're still in you know good enough shape. There's a few people that allow some cattle to deteriorate to a very bad uh, condition before they're brought in. Problems with lameness. There's been some issues with lameness in beef cattle for various reasons. Another issue is extremely wild cattle. Animals differentiate between a man on the ground and a man on a horse. So if you have a rancher, only handles them on a horse. Then at the feed yard, they're only handled on a horse. Then when they get to the plant, they meet their first person on foot. That looks totally different, and that's novel and scary. And now the flight zone's just gone from 3 feet to 25 feet, and that can get dangerous in small pens. So when I see a problem now at the meat plant, it's something I have to fix out at the farm. You talked about problems with lameness and in dairy cows, a real deterioration of the animal. Will you expound on those? Well, a few dairy cows. All dairy cows, of course, you know, there's a point where they got to become beef. And the good dairies are going to um, bring them in when they're still uh, mobile. And yes, they're a retired dairy cow, but they're still in good condition. But there's a few people that will bring in a cow that they've allowed to deteriorate uh, too far gone, too weak, too much difficulty walking. The animal needs to be brought in when it's still fit for transport. And the lameness issue. Say more about that. Lameness is simply difficulty walking. If you have a sore foot, you walk with a limp. Sore feet and sore legs make you walk with a limp. And animals can have different degrees of limp from very, very slight and would be perfectly good for transport and maybe some animal that can barely walk. One of the most important things on transport 
is putting a fit animal onto that trailer. I cannot emphasize that enough. And how do you make improvements in terms of the number of lame animals that go through the system? Wisconsin has made great strides in reducing lameness or limping in dairy cows. Many different things can cause that. Hoof problems, sore legs due to bad housing. And when you measure lameness, and you can measure it on a simple uh, scoring system, Wisconsin has worked hard on reducing lameness, and it's about half the national average. And there's a various different things you have to do, and it gets down to details of management, taking really good care of your stalls, making sure your stalls are well-bedded, and then new facilities going in now, people are building the stalls big enough so the cow can lay down without hitting her legs on a concrete curb. So much of what we've discussed so far is about measuring. Uh, And yet, isn't fundamentally the thing we can't measure pain in animals? I can ask a a fellow person, you know, rate your pain one to ten. I can't ask a cow that. I can't ask a pig that. Talk to me about the idea of trying to sense or measure pain or stress in a creature that can't use language like we do. Okay, there's two places to measure pain and stress. The first is acute stress or pain. Okay, you uh, do a surgical procedure or simply handle a wild animal and it gets scared. And that's very easy to measure, uh, the acute stress. You can measure it by looking at stress hormones and behavior. Now, what gets more difficult is looking at long-term stresses. But there are ways to measure it. It is scientifically documented that cows that are limping have sore feet And um, if you give them a painkiller, which you're not legally allowed to do that, but if you do, then they limp less. Now, that shows you right there that the sore feet hurt. Now, nature has a reason for having pain because if you keep walking on a foot that has something wrong with it, you're going to do further damage to the foot. But by doing an experiment where the animal was given a painkiller and they limp less, and that's a painkiller known to reduce pain in people, that tells you that They're walking on that bad foot because it doesn't hurt as much. And that's a scientifically documented finding. And that then influences all the factors you talked about related, for instance, to lameness. Lameness lameness affects milk production. Now, the question you might ask is, how did the lameness levels get up so high? This gets back to not measuring it. You see, you can get something where it creeps up on you slowly and you don't see it. Then when you finally go out and you measure it and you go, well, yee, gads, this is really bad. So then in Wisconsin, they started really working on a program to reduce lameness. And we've got dairies here in Colorado that are excellent. I've been to some of them, and there's very, very low levels of lame dairy cows. What are other ways, maybe on the horizon, of measuring pain, stress, discomfort in animals? Well, there's some other methods right now that are being used they're way too complicated to use on the farm. They can be used in a research lab where they'll do a painful procedure in a wake conscious animal, and then they'll do just a little tiny light anesthesia and kind of put it to sleep, and they'll compare the differences on the EEG. You know, that's a relatively uh, new method. But it is known that animals feel pain. Another experiment that was done probably 10 years ago, our experiment's called a self-medication experiment. This has been done in rats. It's been done in chickens, and I'll explain it. In a self-medication experiment, they would artificially create a painful inflamed joint by injecting some stuff into it that would really mess up the joint. Then 
the rat has a choice between two different water bottles. One that's full of a fast-acting painkiller that's bitter, and the other water bottle has just got plain water. And when that leg's all sore, and they can actually measure the inflammation, it will drink that nasty painkiller. And then uh, when the leg heals, it will drink the regular water. That shows that an animal will eat or drink something that tastes bitter to reduce the pain. Now, there's some differences between an animal and us because we castrate cattle, make a steer out of them. Well, if that same operation gets done on a person, the person knows what they've lost. The calf doesn't know what he's lost. It just hurts at the time. He doesn't know that he won't grow up into a great big bull that will be able to breed. He doesn't know that. (laughs) That surgical experiment you talked about sounds kind of horrific, really. Well, actually, they were doing that research to try to figure out if slaughter without stunning was painful because um, kosher, kosher slaughter, you don't stun the animal first. They were trying to determine if that caused pain. And there's still a lot of stuff up in the air on that because the type of knife you use is very, very important. And I actually read the latest paper, and they did not describe the type of knife they used. And to people, though, who, who say that experiment is unsettling? The procedures they did are procedures that are already going on in the industry. So you're taking a procedure the industry's already doing, which is done conscious, and then comparing it to uh, the lightly anesthetized and looking at the EEG. They're not coming up with some kind of new, weird, bad thing they're doing. They're doing stuff that's being done every day. Kosher slaughterhouses were already doing this. And some of the halal slaughterhouses were doing this. The uh, big plants like we have in Greeley and Fort Morgan do not do religious slaughter. But this is the idea that in these kosher slaughterhouses, they're not stunned, in other words, before... They are not stunned. That's correct. Mm. And so then a big issue right now, it's very controversial in Europe, is does it hurt the cut, the throat, and the conscious animal? Now, I've designed restraint boxes to hold the animal uh, kosher slaughter, and I've operated the box myself. And when you have a really good rabbi with a super big, long, sharp knife that they use... The animal made very little reaction, and if I waved my hand in his face, he'd make a bigger reaction. But if you use the wrong kind of knife or the wrong procedures, again, procedures really important, yes, they'll react to it. You're saying that the the cattle reacted more to your hand-waving than they did to the actual slaughter. They did. Yeah. You know, if you're going to do slaughter without stunning, uh, it's much more sensitive to details of procedure than a regular slaughtering with a captive bull. You are arguably the most famous autistic person in the world. Um, Remind us how that condition has helped you come up with ways to improve livestock handling. I'm a visual thinker. We've been talking about meat plants, some of the meat plants like Greeley and Fort Morgan. When I talk about those plants, I actually see them in my head. When I talk about uh, animal handling, I see them walking through the system. When I talked about the McDonald's audits, I actually am seeing some of the places where we did those original audits. So I'm an extreme visual thinker. Animals don't think in words. It's sensory-based. What is it seeing? Smelling. Hearing. It is a sensory-based world. And some of the very earliest work I ever did with cattle handling was in Arizona. And I got down in the, in the chute, and I noticed that they'd see a shadow and stop. They'd see a coat on a fence and stop. There'd be a reflection on the floor. They would stop. Nobody else had even thought to even look at that. It was something that just seemed completely obvious to me. And when I first started doing this, I thought everybody thought in pictures like I do. 
Colorado State University animal scientist Temple Grandin is my guest. She has been elected to the prestigious American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Coming up, video in slaughterhouses. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to my conversation with CSU animal scientist Temple Grandin. She spoke to me from Fort Collins about improving the lives and deaths of livestock. Grandin has been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences for her work on animal welfare and on autism. Can we go back to a lot of what you've talked about for mainstream slaughterhouses? To what extent are the systems you've described voluntary or mandatory? Well, the McDonald's uh, program back in 1999, when that started, yeah, it's an industry volunteer system. But if they did not do it, the plant would be thrown off the approved supplier list. And uh, McDonald's buys from like 90% of the big plants, and some of those big plants could be losing a million dollars worth of business a year, so there was an incentive to do it. And then a few years ago, the USDA got a lot more strict, and if they don't do that, they get shut down. There might be folks listening who say— Oh, and I want to mention that the kosher slaughter for religious freedom is exempt from all the regulatory requirements of the USDA. Some might hear our conversation and think, uh, duh, animals experience pain. I could, I could tell you that easily in terms of my cat or my dog. Why are we spending money researching something that we clearly already know? Well, cattle and sheep are grazing prey species animal. And they will sometimes not show the behavior of features of pain when you're watching because you don't want to advertise to the wolves or the lions, if you're a grazing animal, that you're hurt. And I saw a situation where they um, did some castration on some big bulls, and I hid in the scale house. And when the bull came out of the chute, he didn't know I was in the scale house. And he was rolling around on the ground moaning, definitely showing pain. And I walked out of that scale house, and he immediately jumped up and acted normal. Prey species animals will cover it up, and sheep are the worst for doing that. That's why some people that have sheep will go, oh, fine today, dead tomorrow, because uh, they cover it up even more than cattle do. So in order to study um, pain behavior really well, uh, you need to do it with video cameras so that animal doesn't know they're observed, or it has to be done in front of a person that the animal really trusts and then they'll show the, beha- the pain behavior. Because ranchers will say to me, oh, it got right up after we, we dehorned it and it drank water and it ate. Yeah, that's exactly what you know, this bull did when I walked out. He jumped up and acted fine. But when I was hit in the scale house, he was rolling around on the ground moaning. Fascinating. And so you think video is, is in part an answer to this. And I want to focus on the proliferation of undercover videos of slaughterhouses. Animal rights groups have made several showing extreme cruelty. Yeah. By and the very industry. bad things showed up on those videos. You've made your own videos showing when treatment can be humane. Um, here's a bit of a series you made with uh, the North American Meat Association. You're in a sheep slaughterhouse showing one part of a slaughter stunning an animal, again, when an animal is made unconscious before it's slaughtered. The sheep ride to the stunner in a V-conveyor restrainer. This plant uses electrical stunning, head-to-back stunning. They have to wet it first to make good electrical conductivity. Electrical stunning will cause instantaneous unconsciousness by passing a current through the brain. Next, we watch as those sheep have their throats cut Why is it important that people see 
and understand this. Well, I have worked in this industry for 40 years, and I've worked on making a lot of improvements. And the meat plants today are light years better than they were even 10 years ago. And I want to show people how it can be done right, because all the videos that are out there is just all this horrible stuff. Let's show how it's done right and explain it. And with the North American Meat Institute, we've done beef plant video tour with Temple Grandin and pork plant video tour, sheep plant video tour, and turkey plant video tour. And I just wanted to show this is how it's done right. Um, the sheep one is our best one. We got better at doing these as we went along. and It shows the whole entire process completely. Do you think, though, that if these videos proliferate, that there will be more vegetarians made? That's difficult to say. But um, one thing I have noticed in looking at the videos, 10 years ago, they'd go out and catch people doing some really bad things, you know, just beating up animals, dragging them, all kinds of really awful stuff. Now the videos, they're having a harder and harder time finding people really behaving badly because the industry has responded. The pork board has training materials. The beef people have training materials. Uh, the importance of stockmanship is getting more and more uh, emphasized. So the behavior of the people is better. Um, to go back to your what you said previously, that the, the problems in the future really are going to be on the farm versus the slaughterhouse, why is that? What What's happening at the farm? Well, the reason is, is that there's questions, uh, you know, concerns about how pigs are housed, sows in particular, in gestation stalls, and how laying hens are housed. And that's not an issue for the slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouse has nothing to do with that. Is that your area of focus next, then, the farms no, themselves? No, my one thing I've been talking about uh, on my own research is uh, the importance of stockmanship. And another issue I've looked at is uh, some lameness and leg conformation issues in beef cattle. We need to make sure that when we breed animals, that we don't breed problems. Okay, let's. I'm going to take an example that has nothing to do with the farm animal. Let's look at the bulldog. If you go online and you type in bulldog's dilemma into Google for images, you will find a picture of a bulldog that actually functions. It's got a short snout, but it actually has a snout, and it's got longer legs. And then you look at some of the monstrosities they're breeding today that can barely walk. They can't have their babies naturally, and even after they have surgery, they still can't breathe. That's bad becoming normal. That was just done with old-fashioned breeding over the years since 1938. We've got to make sure we don't make those kind of trouble with, uh, with farm animals. And it's really important that we don't let these problems creep up on us. Well, Temple, thanks for being with us. It was great to be here. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She joined me from Fort Collins. This year, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And we'll be back in a moment with Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Teddy Roosevelt missed out on fighting in the Civil War because he was a boy when it ended. But he idolized the heroes of that war. And so he lobbied for the U.S. to do battle in Cuba in what became known as the Spanish-American War. Roosevelt helped form a band of volunteer fighters, mostly from the West, known as the Rough Riders. Their stories are told in the new book Rough Riders, Theodore Roosevelt, His Cowboy Regiment, and The Immortal Charge Up San Juan Hill. Mark Lee Gardner is an author and historian. He lives in Cascade, outside of Manitou Springs. 
Welcome to the program. Thank you. It surprised me to learn how hard Roosevelt worked to get the U.S. into war. He was serving as assistant secretary of the Navy and gave up that job to fight. In addition to being inspired by those Civil War soldiers, mm-hmm. why else did he want to go into battle so badly? Well, there's there's different theories out there. Um, you know, one of them certainly he had this... Uh, amazing martial spirit. I mean, you know, Roosevelt wrote about manliness and and but he also felt like it was a duty of every American to serve his country. And he, of course he served it in many ways, but I think for him the ultimate way of serving your country was to fight for it um in its wars and against its enemies. Is it fair to say that he felt if he didn't fight for his country that he was somehow less than? Yes, I think so. And in fact one one thing that a lot of historians bring up, you know, his father did not fight in the Civil War. And the reason his father didn't fight was his his wife was a Southern belle and his wife had brothers who were fighting in the Confederate Navy. And he didn't want to drive a, a larger wedge in his family by going, joining up and fighting as a Union soldier. So he paid to have a substitute fight for him, which was quite common amongst the wealthy. You oh. could actually pay to have one serve in your place. Uh, and so Theodore Roosevelt, that was kind of a, a somewhat of a shame on the family, that, or at least he felt that way. And he, he wrote later, he says, I didn't want to have to explain to my children why I didn't fight, which is what his father had to do. For him and his brothers and sisters. Now, Mark, I'm picking up on a subtle difference in how we're pronouncing this name. Roos- oh. You're saying Roosevelt. Yes, I do. Yes. To Roosevelt. I, I, you know, and I've heard it both ways. It's just like uh, I'm from Missouri uh, okay. and, in Missouri, but you, you, it's either way is acceptable. All right. Well, just as the U.S. declared war on Spain, Congress passed a bill to add a military unit made up of guys from the West. You write that the American cowboy was thought to be a natural-born, crack-shot fighting man by a public fed on shoot 'em up dime novels and thrilling performances from Buffalo Bill's Congress of Rough Riders of the World. What kinds of men were they looking for, and who did they get? Well, they they were looking for exactly this kind of mythic, you know, Westerner, gunfighter, uh, expert horseman. Uh, there was this thinking at the time that these Westerners were actually even better suited to survive the harsh you know, humid tropical climates because of their experiences in the outdoors and in the uh, arid west. In the okay, arid west, strange, exactly. Some yeah, strange thinking. Exactly. And um, so, what they ended up getting, interestingly enough, they did get real cowpunchers, but they also got stenographers, actors, teachers, uh, blacksmiths. I mean, really, people from all walks of life in the Western territories. But at the same time, uh, there was a great demand to join. From people in the East, um, they called them the millionaire recruits, Ivy Leaguers, polo players, people that were friends of Theodore. Um, so uh, you had this real mix in every economic level from the simple cowpoke on up to the guy who was a champion tennis player. Wow. You, you say cowpunchers. That's yes. just a cowboy. Is no, that right? same thing. Cowpunchers, okay. yeah, buckaroo. Got it. There were also Oklahoma Indians yes, there were. in this mix. Were you surprised by some of the men who took part? Um, yes, in a way I was. I mean, I, I was really more surprised by some of the swells that, that joined up, um, some of the Easterners. Um, the fact that there were, literally, they were champion polo players. And there was a guy that had won yacht races. Um, and 
you know, they weren't, you know, the, the fact that they would want to do this, I mean, they had a very comfortable life, and, uh, but this was, this was something thrilling and exciting. Well, I mean, it's, it really, Roosevelt was kind of the same way uh, in the way his thinking was. What about uh, African Americans? What about blacks? Well, at the time, the army was segregated. Uh, and, you know, in New Mexico, there were, I came across a letter where one, one African American complained, you know, where there's no room, you know, why isn't there a volunteer unit? For us, we want to fight for our country. In the Rough Riders in particular. Yes. Well, not in the Rough Riders in particular, but just wanting to fight. There was no way that the, because the Army was segregated, there was no way that they would integrate within the Rough Riders or any of the other volunteer units. Okay. But the regular Army did have African-American regiments, which we famously know now as the Buffalo Soldiers, and they did participate and fight um, in, the, in the war. The only African-American to actually be with the Rough Riders was Roosevelt's valet. He had a servant, and uh, he went to Cuba with the TR. He brought his servant along. Yes, he did. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with author and historian Mark Lee Gardner about his new book, Rough Riders, Theodore Roosevelt, His Cowboy Regiment, and the Immortal Charge Up San Juan Hill. The rallying cry for the Spanish-American War was Remember the Maine. It was a U.S. battleship sunk in Havana Harbor, and... Um, These men from all over the country wrote to their families that they were motivated to fight because of the sinking of this ship. And reading excerpts of their letters, I was reminded of a poll that came out recently. The Harvard Kennedy School of Government found that young Americans support sending ground troops to fight ISIS. Hmm. But fewer than 20 percent were willing to fight themselves. So different from the Rough Riders. You know, there were some who didn't ultimately get to to be in that battle, and they were heartbroken. Yes, they were by in tears. It. Yes, does that contrast surprise you? It did. It, it, it. I mean, there were literally tens of thousands of men that rushed to enlist when the war broke out, and um, yeah, it is a complete contrast uh, to today. And and I, I and I think it goes back. In, I don't know the exact reason, but I think some of it does go back to the way the Civil War veterans were so honored. After the war, I mean that this was the great war to all Americans, and you know Roosevelt grew up as a boy during the war, and there were parades and there were uh, monuments that were done and reunions and and these young men in the 1890s did not have that kind of heroic moment that that glory those they didn't win any laurels yet, and mm-hmm. here was their opportunity to prove themselves. And so they had seen a very affirming ev- environment, yes. if you will, for veterans. Yes, exactly. And, and longed to be lionized, yes. I, I guess. And, and they also, they really felt Spain was the enemy. They really blamed Spain for this tragedy, this explosion that, that cost 266 men their lives in Havana Harbor. There is one character who really brings this idea to life. Theodore Miller was yes. a Princeton graduate. His father founded Chautauqua mm-hmm. in New York. And he goes down to New Orleans to meet the rough riders on their way to Florida, where they will then ship off to Cuba. Mm -hmm. He wants to join the unit and just barely gets a spot. Exactly. He was like, he he had a connection and there was, you know, with any military unit, there's, there's illness and uh, men men drop out for whatever reason. And there actually had, there were measles even before the unit got anywhere, uh, you know, important, even during training camp, you know, men were sick with measles and other illnesses. So there was a spot for him in in the company uh, that was, that was a friend of his, uh, was a lieutenant in and was able to get him in at the last minute, literally. And he was thrilled. He was thrilled. And he still almost didn't make it to Cuba because he didn't have a gun. You know, they had to find a gun for him in Florida. 
You have an incredible level of detail in this book about the Rough Riders, especially about how the soldiers interacted. Um, can you read from a scene? It's from the first battle at Las Guasimas. Yes. Here, a journalist, Richard Harding Davis, finds a trooper stretched out, leaning on a rock, and he has a small hole in his forehead. Mm-hmm. His name, the, the, the trooper's name was Tilden Dawson. Davis knelt down, took some water from his canteen, and washed the wound and found where it exited the back of the head. He tried to pour some water into the boy's mouth, but the water rolled off his clenched teeth. Davis reached into the trooper's blouse pocket and pulled out a thin book, a copy of the New Testament, published by the American Bible Society two years earlier. He flipped it open. Scribbled in pencil on the end papers was Tilden Dawson, Nevada, Missouri. It's no use, came a voice from behind Davis. The journalist turned around to see another young soldier standing in the trail. The surgeon has seen him, the soldier said. He says he is just the same as dead. He is my bunkie. We only met two weeks ago at San Antonio, but he and me had got to be such good friends. But there's nothing I can do now. The bunkie sat down and began to cry. Davis moved on toward the sound of the guns. Back on the skirmish line, Wood, Colonel Leonard Wood, commander of the Rough Riders, walked up on a trooper who had been shot through the chest. Blood completely soaked the young man's clothes, but he was somehow still conscious. When he saw his commander, he pulled himself up against a tree and slowly reached out his hand. Colonel, he said, I have only a minute. Can you shake hands and say goodbye? You write in just such incredible detail in that scene, and let me say in many others, mm-hmm. particularly about the battles. How do you do that accurately? Well, you know, I I try to, I really love dialogue, and I try to find primary sources. I mean, all the dialogue I use is quoted from primaries. So I don't make any dialogue up. Okay. But, um, I, I found literally dozens of letters that had not been seen before by various rough riders, and it was all thanks to the internet. Um, you know, millions of newspaper pages have been scanned in the last several years and are available online. And many of these rough riders wrote letters and sent them home. Well, the parents or the sister or the uncle walked down to the newspaper office and handed them, "Hey, I got, just got this letter from Cuba," and it was published. And so I had this resource available to me that wow. other historians haven't had. And so a lot of those details, uh, the dialogue, the discussions, um, come from those primary accounts. This discussion of the soldier who asked to have his handshake by Leonard Wood, that came from an account, a manuscript that Leonard Wood wrote after the war for a magazine, never published, but it's at the Library of Congress. So I use all these different sources, and, and I love the detail just like you do, and I feel like it just makes it so much more of a visceral read to have that in there, and, and I, I try my hardest to do that. Mark Lee Gardner, historian and author, is with us. His new book is called Rough Riders. Despite the fact that the Spanish knew the land in Cuba much better and had other advantages at Las Guasimas, the Americans pushed the Spanish troops back. And ultimately, the Rough Riders took part in the most critical battle of the Spanish-American War at San Juan Hill, also known as San Juan Heights. This led the Spanish to surrender. Mm -hmm. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt played a big part strategically, and it really cemented his legacy. Can you explain just briefly what he did that was so critical to victory at San Juan Hill? Yeah, well, what was going on, um, it was just like the whole beginnings of the war. Everything was very disorganized. The commander of the of the army in Cuba 
was a very heavy set man, William Shafter. He was ill most of the time, so he wasn't on the field, and he was having to relay orders back and forth, which was very time-consuming. Well, the Rough Riders were actually being held in reserve uh, before San Juan Heights, and they'd been there for about an hour, and finally Roosevelt gets the order to advance. Well, as the Rough Riders advance, the other troops in front of them who were supposed to be charging hadn't gotten the orders to charge. And so Roosevelt is there. He essentially says, either you take my orders and charge or just get out of the way and let us through. Well, as the Rough Riders start marching through, everyone joins with them, Buffalo soldiers, uh, white regulars, and they together, the cavalry division, assaults uh, Kettle Hill, and Roosevelt's in the forefront, you know, leading his men on. And from Kettle Hill, the next ridge or hill is San Juan, and Roosevelt gets permission to charge San Juan as well. Again, he's always exposing himself to fire. He's at the head of his troops, inspiring his men. Now, the infantry was also charging San Juan Hill, so sometimes we tend to give all the credit to the Rough Riders, but they were one unit in this long assault of this ridge. But an important one. But a very sure. important one, yes. And and some of the officers really ascribed the credit of the success largely to the personality and the exuberance of Theodore Roosevelt. And yet, he almost didn't get awarded the Medal of Honor, although it was something he was very confident he would get. Yes. Um, but he only got it in the 1990s under Bill Clinton. yes. And the legacy of the Rough Riders is Roosevelt's own presidency, exactly. I suppose. Yes. Do you think he could have won office were it not for that? Well, you know, and, and we've I've talked about that a lot. It, it's, it's a very interesting question. A lot of people who met uh, Roosevelt before the Spanish-American War felt like, I mean, this man could be president someday. But I, I'm not so sure without his heroics and the national spotlight that he earned from from his actions in Cuba that he would really have gotten to the presidency so quickly. I mean, it was really uh, a direct line from San Juan. He becomes governor of New York because of his heroics. Then he's on the presidential ticket under McKinley. And then he becomes president when McKinley's assassinated. You use the term bravery. Mm-hmm. But is there a certain foolhardiness here, too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there exactly <laughs> is. Um, you know, one one um, rough rider wrote home and he says, you know, in fact, he said that Roosevelt was a little too foolhardy. I mean, he was a very brave man, lionhearted. But he says, if Roosevelt acts in another battle as he did today, I expect him to fall. I mean, it really was a miracle he didn't fall, um, uh, that he survived somehow. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. And he would, of course, go on to fight many other battles of, he different, would. of different varieties. And it was often successful. <laughs> Historian Mark Lee Gardner recorded in May. His new book is called Rough Riders, Theodore Roosevelt, His Cowboy Regiment, and the Immortal Charge Up San Juan Hill. Gardner lives in Cascade, Colorado. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Coming up, gender swapping in Shakespeare. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. William Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors follows two sets of identical twins and two rival cities. It is full of twists and turns. And this summer, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival in Boulder adds some more twists and turns. The traditional male leads are played by women. And the play is set in 1930s Paris rather than ancient Rome. Director Jeffrey Kent joins us, and so does actor Lindsay Kyler, who stars as Dromia of Syracuse, not Dromeo, and (laughs) welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hi, Lindsay. Jeffrey, I hear the reason you decided to gender swap the main roles in the Comedy of Errors was a profusion of female talents this year. Yeah, and we've been a part of casting Shakespeare Festival, you know, in 59 years, and in my last 14 there... 
we constantly would have to turn away these talented actresses because the proportion just isn't right. Um, <laughs> so you get these amazing actresses and you have two roles for them and you get a bunch of guys show up and you've got 16 roles for them. It just doesn't seem fair. So is there in- inherent gender bias in Shakespeare? Well, it's interesting because, you know, even in Shakespeare's time when, of course, women weren't allowed on stage at all, the younger male members of the company tended to play these female roles. And you see that's why a lot of his female roles dress in drag and dress as young men. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but he's also written some of the strongest female characters to hit the stage, period. So he seems very invested in their stories. So interesting. You did this with another festival production this summer as well? Well, yeah. As a result, because we work in rep, which means the Colorado Shakespeare Festival gets a pool of actors and then has to use them across multiple shows, which means in addition to Comedy of Errors having some gender swapping, so does Troilus and Cressida. So you Agamemnon and Ulysses are uh, swinging swords and wearing skirts. You know, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) So, Lindsay, you describe this play as, quote, a reunion story of ridiculousness. Um, (laughs) Did I? (laughs) I I think so, to our producer. um, two Two sets of twins are separated at birth. As adults, they find themselves in the same city for the first time, mm-hmm. and people confuse one twin for the other. Things get sort of chaotic from there. What did you think when you learned that you'd be cast as one of the twins, as we said, Dromia of Syracuse? Yeah, I think uh, I like to say that I had uh, a wonderful mix of emotions. Of uh, I was incredibly excited because uh, my comedic chops are not usually asked of me. Uh, so the opportunity to sort of stretch in a different way was uh, so thrilling. Uh, and then I was equally terrified <laughs> because I think that isn't normally asked of me. Uh, it was this wonderful mix of, of excitement and, and trepidation. <laughs> Where did the terror come from? Say more about that. Uh, just especially since uh, sort of speaking to what Jeffrey was saying, being a, mostly a classical actress, uh, the roles that are available are a little more um, narrow, um, narrow, and and sort of sort of uh, I tend to play a lot of ingenues, so I, I joke that I get paid to fall in love and cry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that's my job. So uh, so the terror kind of came from from really having to step outside of my comfort zone, uh, which is a wonderful thing and incredibly exciting. Uh, but definitely, you know, I was thrown into a different situation than I'm normally ex- uh, exposed to. I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of slapstick in this production. Mm-hmm. Um, did you draw inspiration from contemporary female actors or comedians for the part? You know, uh, I didn't. I really was inspired by, we have some wonderfully funny gentlemen in our cast um, who uh, lend themselves to comedy very easily. And I think it's because they've probably had many more years of experience with it. Uh, But so really working with them, watching them, seeing how they uh, tried out bits or or thought about the comedy in physical ways was really exciting uh, and helpful for me in the rehearsal process. Because I can't help but think of someone like Lucille Ball, right. and, you know, in a scenario like this, inviting me to Vegemite or something. Sure, of course. You talk about it being physical. Will you describe the physicality of the slapstick? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> I do some cartwheels in this. Uh, a lot of us get picked up and kind of thrown around. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of a, a cheerleading move that happens. <laughs> so I definitely acquired my fair share of bumps and bruises along the way, but all with love and excitement. <laughs> uh, they were lovingly acquired for sure. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of this year's Colorado Shakespeare Festival, which takes place on the CU Boulder campus, Uh, We're talking about the Comedy of Errors. It's one production in the festival this year, and there's been some gender swapping of roles in this. The two sets of identical twins, instead of being played by men, are played by women. 
And is it just as, as simple, Jeffrey, as changing pronouns, or is there something more to it? Well, I, I have to admit, I thought it was that simple. <laughs> okay. Um, and certainly, you know, with, with Shakespeare's rhythm of his language, you have to kind of stay with that iambic pentameter feel. So you can't, like when you're going to change husband to wife, you've got to figure out to say, dear wife. So you get husband and you stay with rhythm. Uh-huh. But then there was, so there was the language changes of which there are certainly a number to support the concept. But then there's... Exploring violence between women, comic violence between women, which exists, and as, and as you mentioned with Lucille Ball, but staging that is very different than the slapstick between two guys. So we had to kind of define what is what is that? What is the physical life between these women? And they're smashing each other with purses and whacking mm-hmm. each other over the head with French bread and just trying to find the comedy of that. And why French bread? Because you've also swapped <laughs> the venue here. Instead of ancient Rome, it's 1930s Paris, Jeffrey? Oh, definitely. Um, why? Well, Comedy Vers has a couple of themes in it. And one is that they're lost all the time. There's all these near misses. There's all these, like, I just saw so-and-so. Who You're so-and-so. What's going on? And also, in the end, it's still a love story of people re-falling in love, meeting new people they fall in love with children reunited with their parents like all this and and to me paris symbolizes a place where you can get lost the second you you look look to your right or left and also it's a city of love so it seemed Mm. to suit the play one thing that you did not change was a a very famous line from the end of the play the comedy of errors and Lindsay, i'm going to have you recite it sure it's uh we came into this world like brother and brother now let's go hand in hand not one before the other so preserving brother and brother, why not change it, Jeffrey? That's a great question. Um, when you when you adapt Shakespeare um, versus rewriting Shakespeare, again, gender pronouns really easy. But when it starts to rhyme, then you we started rewriting it, and all the ones we came up with were <laughs> terrible. Um, uh, we came to this world as like sister and sister. Let's go before not one of each other's Mister. Like they just. Sounded... But wait, what about we came into the world like mother and mother? And now let's go hand in hand, not one before the other. Did we try that one, Lindsay? We did not. We'll try put that, that in one. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how the audience responds. Uh, our, one of the ones that we struggled with in rehearsal was, uh, "As from a man, a bear; as from a bear, a man would run for life. So fly I from him that would be my wife," which is the original line. Uh-huh. And then, Lindsay, what do you? What's the rewrite on that? Uh, I think. Th- I think that is it. Or I think we still say, as from a oh, as from a bear, a man would run. Yeah, would run for life. So fly I from him that would that, call me wife. That would call me wife. That would call me yeah. wife. So we were trying to keep the rhyme intact by switching inside. My my wife rewrote that one. That's a it's a team effort. Boy, this sounds like it takes a lot of memorization and re memorization, Lindsay. I wonder if is this a show you've starred in before? This is your no, first. No, I've okay. never. Yeah, it's I've your never first had the first. opportunity. Yeah. Uh huh. And so is it. Um, I guess then you don't have the original to kind of trip you up. Right, right. And honestly, if I was the original, most likely I would be learning, you know, uh, uh, the Luciano, uh, Luciana lines probably. Right, exactly. exactly. The wives have become husbands in ours as well. (laughs) So it's not only a venue change, gender changes, but it's also a time change. So it's the 1930s in this production of the Comedy of Errors. Anything to say about that, Jeffrey? Um, Well, when we were casting it, you know, you're always trying to find the location. We found this idea. And then one of the actors that came in, actresses that came in, played the accordion. We were like, well, what? what style of accordion? She's like, well, mostly 1930s Parisian minstrel songs. <laughs> we're like, you're cast. Um, so we have a live accordion player in the show that is her, she, her specialty is playing French musettes. So our show is rife with all this great live music that just walked in off the street. It's so kismet. 
And you adapted the production based on that talent is the point. Yeah, or rather we had the idea and sometimes, you know, you get a concept and you could, the play can drown underneath it as you get an idea and you just keep jamming the play into your idea. And in this case, as we chose the idea, opportunities kept affording themselves to the piece that it worked for women in that time period. This wonderful musician came in and, and it just felt right. You know, one could draw parallels to Hollywood trends right now. Um, I think of recent films like the new Ghostbusters, Mm -hmm. in which roles originally written for men are played by women. There's an all-female Ocean's Eleven remake in Mm -hmm. the works. Um, Critics of the former said that it ruined a cult classic. Seems mean-spirited somehow. But, Lindsay, what do you make of that? Can this gender swap take away from a classic? You know, I think that it really uh, has the uh, the ability to enhance it. You know, there are so many different layers that we don't get to see when it's um, sort of done traditionally. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with those layers, but we open up a whole new world of possibility when all of a sudden you're seeing how people in these same situations, um, but with sort of different... Um, uh, sensibilities approach it you know yeah. the way that two women bicker uh, are gonna it's gonna be probably very different than the way two men bicker or the way that uh, uh, a moment can that w- was once maybe uh, a little threatening like uh, a, a man coming on to a, a a woman can become very flirtatious and sexy and fun when it's an empowered woman asserting what she you know that her interest in a gentleman uh, so I don't I don't think that it does anything other than just sort of expose wonderful new layers uh, that can be appreciated, like nuances, you know? Jeffrey, just a quick um, history lesson here. So as you said, men in Shakespeare's day played women. Mm -hmm. I understood that that is where the term drag came from, dressed as a girl, that that was an instruction on some of the folios. But that's been kind of blown out of the water or what? I couldn't find a specific Shakespeare reference to the word drag. Um, And and we know when theater started all the way back in the Greeks, I mean, it was Dionysus and there was all these women on stage. And the Greeks went, it's kind of dangerous to have those women up on stage. It's a little too tempting. Let's just have guys do it. And that carried into Shakespeare's time. Um, And while the term drag seems to have popped up more in the 18th century, it also could be a Yiddish word, which is a mispronunciation of the word. Um, Or the idea that men in dresses didn't know how to move, so they were dragging them along the ground. So there's like all these different kind of theories on that word. Uh, It wasn't until like 1660, 100 years after Shakespeare's time, when King Charles II made it legal for women to perform on stage. Legal. So it's truly... there was a proclamation. Wow. And (laughs) then... It, it probably because he was dating an actress or had a mistress that was an actress. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll take the benefit of that because it certainly changed Shakespeare for the better. What a lovely outlaw you are, Lindsay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thanks, thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thanks. Jeffrey Kent directs Colorado Shakespeare Festival's production of The Comedy of Errors, which stars Lindsay Kyler. The play runs through August 7th at the Mary Rippon Outdoor Theater in Boulder that's on the CU campus. And you can see photos from the show at cprnews.org. Finally today, a song for summer. The infamous String Dusters are an acoustic ensemble blending traditional bluegrass and improvisational jamgrass. They formed in 2006 in Nashville, Tennessee. But the three members of this quintet now call Colorado home. They're currently on tour, made a stop at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. From their 2014 release, here's the song Summer Camp. Remember
infamous string dusters, largely based in Colorado now. The song is Summer Camp from their 2014 release, Let It Go. We'll let you go now. That's Colorado Matters. For today, I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.